You arrived at the Chateau de Chateaubriand for the late afternoon tour. You listened politely as the guide told your group about the long and rich history of the castle and this region of France. But you really weren't interested in most of what she was saying. You're here on a mission. You hid in the bathroom in the Great Hall, not wishing to disturb any of the historical artifacts on display in the thousand-year-old building. You're only here to see a ghost. It's dark now, but you know where to go. Across the Great Hall, through the ceremonial spiral staircase, right to the Chambre d'Array, the Golden Room. This is where she was murdered. You know better than to trespass on historical grounds, but you have to know if the old legends are true. Will she appear? Or all of them? Or just the blood? It's still hours before midnight. You've already been through the golden room on the tour, but now you have a moment to examine it more closely. The heavy red drapes and gold-trimmed molding. What holds your attention, though, is the fireplace. You can't see much inside it. It looks like a deep black yawing pit in the wall. What would this place have been like 500 years ago? What was it like to be her? A child bride who grew into a king's mistress and met a tragic end. Murdered in this room, October 16th, 1537. Midnight, your eyes have adjusted to the dim light and you use your cell phone to illuminate the room. You're afraid now, not of being discovered by security, but because when the ghosts come, you're not sure what they'll do when they find you here. You can't tell where the sound is coming from. Every little noise echoes off the stone walls in the room. Your heart starts pounding. A large pool of blood catches the light from your phone, right in front of the fireplace. Welcome to Haunted Places. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Chateau de Chateaubriand, a stunning castle in western France, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. If you can't get enough haunted places, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on your favorite podcast directory, as well as on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network, or on our website, parcast.com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. The Chateau de Chateaubriand was built sometime near 1050 at the confluence of the Cher and Rollard rivers in Brittany, France. Originally a wooden structure, 
It grew into a stronghold keep on the border of the rest of France. As it was built up, its function changed from territorial marker to aristocratic residency. The history of Chateau de Chateaubriand is marred with tragedy. The castle's hauntings trace back to the sudden deaths of two women. It all started in 1252, when a husband and wife, Sibylle de la Garche and Geoffrey IV, torn apart by war, met an unusual and terrible end. Gilles feels the emptiness of the chateau with every footstep he takes. He's served the chateau for over 30 years. Never has it sounded so barren. Louis IX's crusade has sucked up every able-bodied man in the French countryside and sent them to the heart of Egypt. The gleam in his master's eye as he donned his armor frightened Gilles. He still saw him as the boy he helped raise, the boy who giggled as he hid about the chateau. Even as his wife grabbed Geoffrey's arm, there was something determined and possessed about the man. He dragged her through the chateau's exit with a tender force. Gilles knelt by Sibylle for hours as she cried into his shoulder. They sat there until the sun set behind the horizon and the light of the day slowly evaporated. Like the waning hope the two of them felt. It's been three days now. Sibylle has not left her bedchambers. Gilles brings her food and watches her eat. He will return, madame, Gilles says softly. I've seen war before. He will return. Sibylle's eyes flash with scorn. It takes Gilles aback, and he quickly regains his composure and continues to feed the madame. Her face softens, and she eats willingly. He says nothing more. Then, unfortunate news arrives. The war effort looks to be in vain. The soldiers are tired, and a plague is sweeping their ranks. Gilles tries to keep the news from Sibylle, but that night, she is standing in the doorway when he arrives at her chambers. She holds a torch in her hand. It illuminates her thin nightgown and her bare, pale feet. When she sees Gilles, she cocks her head with a sickly smile. Sibylle steps past Gilles with a soft determination. He tries to protest. Sibylle moves down each hallway of the chateau, whispering to herself. When Gilles works up the courage, he moves close enough to hear. He comes. He's here. I know he's here. The words send a cold shock down Gilles' spine. He stops dead in his tracks. He's tired, and there's work to be done. He leaves the tray of food outside Sibylle's door and goes to bed. He will approach the question of her sanity tomorrow. But he cannot bring himself to. The next night, he follows Sibylle again, and then again on the next, and again, and again, and again. On one desperate night, he tries to stop her. He grabs her arm. 
It is the most bold thing he has done in all his years as the chateau's servant. She shrieks and pins him against the wall. The strength of the small woman catches him off guard. Her eyes are fiery and bloodshot. She starts clawing at his face, tearing bits of flesh from his cheek with each swipe of her nails. He tries to put up his hands to protect himself, but then she suddenly softens. She cocks her head as though curious as to why Gilles is there. Then she says, he comes. Her bare feet move across the stone floor deliberately, as though each step is planned. They grow calloused with each passing day. After two weeks, they freely bleed against the cobblestones. He's here. Each night, he leaves the tray of food outside her door. Each morning, it remains, full and untouched. Somehow, the madame does not grow thin. Her hair is frailed and clumps of it remain on her pillow. Her skin is sickly pale. Her feet leave bloodstains on the end of the sheets, but she does not grow thin, even without eating a morsel. I know he's here. Gilles no longer needs to meet her at the doorway. He can find her by following the bloody footprints. The fresh ones are easy to spot. The ones caked into the stone have a cracked, stale quality to them. He feels exhausted. His eyes are heavy and dry. The wounds on his cheeks have barely healed. He can feel their stinging reminder of his transgression with each passing day. His nights are spent following the madame, making sure she does not collapse or hurt herself in any way. And then, someone comes at night. Gilles greets the visitor at the doorway. He nearly faints with joy when he discovers it's Geoffrey, returned at last. The servants of the castle swarm him, begging for an explanation. We thought the war was lost, they chime. Geoffrey smiles and pats them on the back in turn. There's time for that later, he says. First, I must see my wife. You try to stop him, but there's nothing you can say. When he sees the empty room, he turns to you. Gilles, good man, where's my wife? You take one wretched swallow and lead him along the path of bloody footprints. You dare not look back at the chateau's master. You find her in the east wing. You know this means she's been walking for several hours already. All you and Geoffrey can see is the pale white of her nightgown. Sibylle, Geoffrey says. His voice rings against the hallway walls. The pale madame turns. Her face is as white as her nightgown. Her frazzled hair reaches in all directions. She hunches and steps forward. Sibylle, Geoffrey says again. Aren't you cold? What in God's name are you doing out here? Sabille holds the flame up to Geoffrey's face. The light flickers and dances across his travel-wearied features. Gilles can feel the heat. 
She then pulls the light away from him and puts it upon Gilles. It's hot. He thinks the tips of his eyebrows might singe. He's here, she whispers. Then she falls to the floor, dead. In 1252, Geoffrey IV of Chateau de Chateaubriand joined Louis IX in his religious crusade against Egypt. The crusade failed due to exhausted troops and a deadly plague that swept the soldiers' ranks. Geoffrey IV was captured and held in captivity by the Egyptians. After several years, a heavy ransom was paid for his release. Too weary to send word ahead, Geoffrey arrived at the Chateau de Chateaubriand in the middle of the night. His lonely and sleepless wife, Sibylle de la Guerche, had spent her time wandering the chateau's halls, hoping for signs of her husband. Upon the shock of seeing him returned, she died on the spot. Many say Sabille still wanders the chateau's halls, searching for the spirit of her husband. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. Now, our story continues. The most significant changes to the Chateau de Chateaubriand began with the addition of the residential wings in the 1490s by Françoise de Dinan. Her grandson, Jean de Laval, finished the reconstruction in the 1530s. The most infamous addition was the Golden Room, a room that would become very important to the history of Chateau de Chateaubriand. <laughs> the history starts with de Laval's wife, Françoise de Foix. Françoise de Foix was a name known all over France. She was a charming conversationalist in three languages. The benefit of high education and a wealthy family, connected with Queen Anne herself. She would go on to make waves as a fashionista, as well as a political influencer. She was also the first mistress of King Francis I. It was an affair that would end with Dufois shamefully returning to Chateau de Chateaubriand, where a jealous and enraged husband lurked and waited for revenge. It's a sunny day in 1537. Defoy is taking a walk through the beautiful gardens of the Chateau de Chateaubriand. The fresh air and flowers keep her company. Her husband, Jean de Laval, used to take her on walks every day through the gardens. That was before, before the loss of her daughter and before the king had sent her back home once he found a new mistress. Her vibrant and exciting social life had grown dull over the years, and her husband's growing coldness had left her very lonely. She writes poetry, reads books, and continues her self-education. Her thirst for life carries on in her thirst for art, but her 20-year relationship with the king hasn't just made her husband cold and distant. It has 
boiled him to a slow, murderous rage. And so she grows lonely and gives into the temptations that brought her so much joy. Before long, her writings turn to letters, letters to King Francis I. Starved for companionship, she reaches out to her old lover as a friend, craving the stimulating conversation they once shared. And although the king was surely having more than his share of passionate moments with his new mistresses, he writes her back. Similarly starved for intellectual stimulation and missing Dufois, the two begin a correspondence that lasts for months. The king even makes the half-day journey to the Chateau de Chateaubriand on several occasions. They cultivate a friendship, putting aside the past. They talk and laugh. She even takes him on walks in the sunshine through her garden. De Laval can't object to his king paying a visit, but he watches in secret. He watches as his wife laughs on the arm of the king. He sees the way she's looking at him. He sees her smiling warmly and over the familiar touches. From the window high above, he watches his wife love another man. The king has left, not even an hour ago, and Dufois is still strolling the garden, humming happily to herself. He can't take it anymore. His jealousy has reached its limit. For the first time in years, he joins his wife in the garden. Grabbing her roughly by the arm, he marches her back into the castle while she struggles. Jean de Laval takes the sunshine away from her. Dufois's husband of 30 years locks her away in a room covered with black cloth, lit only by a single funerary lamp. This is the golden room. She pounds on the door, trying to yank it open. She screams for hours, demanding an explanation, demanding to be free. Her throat wears out and becomes raspy. She still yells, but it's muted and coarse. Each new shout makes her ever so thirsty. Her only contact is with black-clothed servants, who bring her the smallest of meals, only enough to keep her alive. She tries to talk to them, pleading to be released, but they're under strict instructions not to speak to her. These are the servants she's known for years. She's laughed with them and confided in them. She cries and pleads, asking for her freedom, begging them to let her out. They ignore her cries. Soon, they become like shadows, flickering and fleeting in the firelight. She cowers in the corner when they leave her food in her chambers. Weeks pass. Her spirit is breaking. Now it takes everything she has to rise from the bed when the servants come with her meals. But she must, she must hide from them. Their black clothing and demonic whispers are terrible to behold. Her hair is falling out, and her unbathed stench fills the room. She tries to keep track of the days, 
by carving tally marks in the bedpost. She hasn't managed to do much more than bloody her own fingertips. Delirious with heartache and malnourished, she sticks to her sheets, covered with sweat and bed sores. Then the woman comes. She holds a torch that flickers across a thin nightgown. It is translucent, but Francoise Dufois cannot see the body underneath. Dufois tries to speak to her, but all that comes out is a dry croak. Her throat is raw, useless. The woman walks across the room to the bed and inspects Dufois closely. Dufois tries to recoil, but she's too weak to get away. The woman reaches out her hands and searches Dufois's face. Her grimace turns sour at what she finds, and she starts to dig her fingers deeper into the flesh of Dufois's cheeks. I know he's here. Dufois is unsure where the voice came from. The woman did not move her lips. She feels resigned, unable even to scream, as the woman's nails tear at her skin. Then the servants come, and the woman vanishes. She exhales as they enter, relieved for once to see their ghastly forms. They do not comment on the wounds covering her face. Defois opens her eyes, expecting the servants with her food. Two surgeons enter, dressed in heavy, coarse robes. Thick masks stuffed with flower petals conceal their faces, and glassed lenses reflect the torchlight of de Laval's four armed guards. Dufois did not think she even had the energy to be afraid. The appearance of the surgeons changes that instantly. They poke and prod her with their wooden rods. These rods are not weapons. They're used for treatment of the sick. She tries to reach out to them, to pull them close enough to explain, I'm not sick, she wants to shout. But she's too weak to speak. And the gasping noises she makes fall on deaf ears. They carry sharper instruments, wrapped in black cloth, also for use on the sick. They step back and unpack them. It wasn't unusual to have guards present with patients. Memories of the Black Plague still ran through every city in France. Preventing the spread of disease was a brutal affair, and the afflicted were often treated against their will. Dufois knows what comes next. If she can't explain herself, if she can't reason with the guards or doctors, she will die. She reaches out toward them, trying to say something, anything. She manages to croak out, please help. Thin, sweating, barely able to move. Her fingers are covered with crusted blood. The skin on her neck and face dawns scabs and sores from her incessant scratching. Her breath is stale and reeks. That's all the evidence they need. With a gesture, the guards lurch at her. 
The doctors work quickly. They quickly open her arms and legs with their instruments. They know exactly where to cut. Wrist to shoulder, two deep slices. Inner thigh to ankle, two more slices. The guards don't need to hold her any longer. Francoise de Foix is weak from her imprisonment and dies quickly, covered in her own blood in a room full of strangers while her husband watches. The epitaph on her tombstone reads in part, here lies a nothing that once triumphed over all. On October 16, 1537, at the age of 42, Francoise de Foix died in the golden room of the Chateau de Chateaubriand. Every year for nearly 500 years, on that night, people have reported seeing something there. Some say they can see Francoise de Foix pacing in her room, waiting to finally be let out. Some say they've also seen Jean de Laval with her, making sure, even in death, that she will never escape. Our story will continue in a moment, right after the break. And now, back to our story. It wasn't always called the Golden Room. Centuries of new lords and deterioration means a lot of redecorating. Sometime in the 1630s, this chamber was redone with an Italian flair, and all of its gold trimming were added. No easy task holding the decor up to the standards of royalty. The work normally reserved for summer takes months and months, leading well into autumn, into October. It's October 16th. Working around the clock to finish, one of the workers takes a much-needed rest from his back-breaking work. It's not wise to sleep on the job, but it's late at night, and better to take a little break than get sloppy. He puts his tools aside and sits in the corner of the room. He's just planning to rest his arms and aching legs. But he's so exhausted, and it's so late, that he falls almost immediately asleep. There's a single work lamp hanging nearby, but after a few hours, it goes out. It's completely dark now and nearing midnight. Almost as soon as he closes his eyes, he jolts awake. Something's wrong. He grabs his nearby tools, groggily thinking the master of the house has caught him resting on the job. But the room is completely empty, and he's alone. The hair in his arm stands up. Something about the room commands his attention. The more he looks, the more confused he becomes. Nothing is out of place here. He can see the entire room clearly, despite the late hour. The room is well lit by the ornate golden fireplace. The fireplace, that's what woke him. He didn't light it. He was working by the light of a single lantern. One of the castle servants must have come back to check on him and lit it so he could continue his work. The golden room must be finished soon, and he's already wasted too many hours on idle slumber. 
He still feels like he's being watched in an empty room. He stares into the dim golden lighting, the subtle unquiet of an angry presence closing in on him. Dressed in filthy, stained robes, a woman appears in the corner. He tries to tell himself that she must have walked through the door, that sleep is playing tricks on him. But as she paces slowly by the bed, a pool of blood appears by the fireplace, not creeping out from under the molding or seeping in from between the stones. The woman barely makes a sound as she walks rhythmically back and forth across the room. Every once in a while, she walks to the door of the chamber and bangs against it furiously. Her mouth opens in what would be a scream, except nothing comes out. Now, he notices the heat from the fire doesn't quite touch him. The room is still cold. He reaches his hand out to the fire. It goes out. He stands, hoping to make a speedy exit. The woman stops pacing when he stands. She stops moving entirely. He starts sweating, despite the chill. He takes a step toward the door. The ghost of Defois turns her head toward him. He can't tell if the expression on her face is fear or anger. She's standing between him and the door. He doesn't breathe as they stand there, facing each other. Her arms reach out for him, and he can see the open, bleeding wounds. Her mouth is twisted in a silent scream as she grabs him and pushes him roughly into the fireplace. Now he can feel the heat of the fire. Every year on the anniversary of her murder, Françoise de Foix appears in the golden room at the Chateau de Chateaubriand. She paces the room as though looking for a way out, looking for a way to avoid her imminent death. However, sometimes she's not alone. At the end of the French Revolution, the Chateau was sold and resold. It changed hands many times, but the haunted lore that surrounded it stayed firm. By the mid-1800s, it had been placed under historical protection as a national landmark. A clerk named Hugo inspects the chateau to ensure it is being properly preserved. The castle has had many additions since Defois was murdered, and Hugo takes his time, going room by room. He inspected the golden room hours earlier, making sure he wouldn't be there at midnight. Not that he believed in ghosts, but better safe than sorry. He's in the middle of the great hall, taking notes on the last few things on his list, when... On the other side of the great hall, past the ceremonial staircase, he hears them before he sees them. Hugo tells himself it's a joke, or maybe someone from the Monument Society has come to check on his progress. He can only lie to himself for a moment before they appear. 
A procession of ghostly monks walks somberly across the room. Their heads are bowed, and he can't make out their faces, but there's something sad in their gait. They walk slowly across the dim hall, reluctant to revisit the room where Dufois was murdered. Orange, wispy light dances against a distant wall. The fireplace in the golden room has been lit. Some part of the clerk's mind notes that he can't smell the smoke or kindling. A new spirit joins the march. This one stands at the head of the procession, guiding them sternly, walking with a restrained formality. He knows this must be de Laval, the once scorned husband. They ripple in the moonlight, edging closer to the golden room. De Laval and the monks don't seem to notice the clerk, and he's perfectly fine not being seen. Flanking him now are two plague doctors in full surgical cloaks. They turn to look at Hugo through masks with long pointed noses. Before he can react, they're out of sight, on their way to the golden room. And then, finally, she appears. Dufois, draped in white. Her eyes seem to shine in the dark. She has her head down. Her hands are folded neatly. As the clerk watches her walk out of sight and toward the orange light of the fireplace, he feels a stab of sadness pierce through his fear for a moment. He feels compelled to follow compelled to see the procession to its end. Midnight is over. The fire is gone. The monks are gone. De Laval stands with the doctors flanking him. He points at Defois. Her skin is covered in sores and scratches. The doctors nod and approach her. Until... Defois directs her spindly arm at Hugo. Her long, bony finger juts out at him in accusation. Hugo is struck at first with shock, but then he looks at his arms, and to his horror, he understands. They're covered in boils, red and oozing with pus. The doctors turn their heads to follow Dufois's pointed finger. They see Hugo and their eyes alight with hunger. They advance, stakes tapping against their palms. They will not let the plague get out. Blood flecks out of Hugo's mouth and drips down his chin. He trips over his own feet and collapses. His body screams with deep aches and he's burning up under his clothes. Defois is gone. The doctors approach, their sharp instruments gleaming in the firelight. His boils begin to fill with pus and burst, each one like a tiny dagger in his face and torso. He's getting weaker by the moment. There's only one thing these surgeons do to cure Hugo. Some say that on the anniversary of Francoise Dufois's death, 
you see more than just the ghost of the woman. You might see a full procession, complete with the ghosts of monks, plague doctors, and de Laval himself. So it's been, for hundreds of years, blood, priests, de foie. Every October 16th, she shows herself, trapped forever in the bloody night she died, maybe trying to warn us, hoping some young woman who's still alive will learn to avoid toxic men. Or maybe she just wants to be remembered, if not for her amazing life, then for her brutal death. And let's not forget about Sibylle de la Garche, the woman who still looks tirelessly for one last glimpse of her missing husband. But be warned, the ghosts of Chateau de Chateaubriand died as tortured women, and their visits to the chateau are nothing if not inspired by pain. Thanks for listening to Haunted Places. Don't forget to subscribe to Haunted Places on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Thursday. We'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Ron Shapiro. With production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Travis McMaster. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>